Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let you know I have a free on-demand masterclass called Five Steps to Writing a Novel Without Letting Perfectionism or Procrastination Get in the Way. In this free training, I cover things like where perfectionism comes from, how it's directly linked to procrastination, and what you can do right now to start making real progress with your writing. I also talk about the problem with popular plotting methods and how they can do more harm than good, especially if you're brand new to writing. And last but certainly not least, I share some of the most common mistakes I see writers make so you can avoid them and make this the year you finish your novel. If this sounds like something you're interested in, you can sign up for free at savannagilbo.com forward slash training. One more time, that's savannagilbo.com forward slash training to get your hands on this free masterclass. For me, when I read this first chapter, how I feel is, well, I mean, this is kind of a silly word, but I just feel emotional. I feel emotional. Yeah. I have big feelings. I think that that longing, that terror of wanting to add value to life. And also, I think even if you haven't been at some place in your life to feel this way, but feeling like you can reach a place of just exhaustion and acceptance of what your role is. Welcome to the Fiction Writing Made Easy podcast. My name is Savannah Gilbo, and I'm here to help you write a story that works. I want to prove to you that writing a novel doesn't have to be overwhelming. So each week, I'll bring you a brand new episode with simple, actionable, and step-by-step strategies that you can implement in your writing right away. So whether you're brand new to writing or more of a seasoned author looking to improve your craft, this podcast is for you. So pick up a pen and let's get started. Hey, Savannah. Thanks so much for analyzing the five people you meet in heaven with me. I'm really excited dig into this one. This book is one of my favorites from when I was younger. I don't know when it was uh, published now. I'm trying to find the quick copy right date, but I know it's an, it's a much older one. One of Mitch Albom's, you know, one of his, his earlier books, his first book was actually, I believe, Tuesdays with Maury, which was a memoir. Mm-hmm. And this is his first fiction book. But I've been a big fan of Mitch Albom since I was little. And this book in particular... So now it'll be fun to analyze it with a deep lens. Yes, I'm excited too. And for everybody listening, I have not read this book, but I did see the movie they made based on this book a while ago. I do have the knowledge of what the story is, but I haven't read it in depth like Abigail has. So it'll be fun to see kind of what we each bring to it based on Abigail knowing the most about it and me knowing the least about it. Yeah, and I haven't read this one in a long time in its entirety, but I know it pretty well because I've read it several times. Yeah. If you like this first chapter, go for it. It's a quick read, but an emotional one. Yes. Yep. I think you said it's only like 196 pages. So definitely a quick read. Do you want to kick us off with a summary of the chapter we're going to look at? Yeah, sure. So in this first chapter, it's actually titled The End. And it's about the day that Eddie dies. So the story is about Eddie and he, or Eddie the maintenance man, as the the children call him. And he works at Ruby Pierre, which is an amusement park by an ocean. So I always kind of saw it on the West Coast, but it's not specified to my knowledge if it's West or East Coast. Mm -hmm. And basically, you just kind of go about through Eddie's day. His job is to maintain the rides at the pier and he goes through and the today is he's going to ride the roller coaster day. So he's looking at the roller coasters and fixing them. As he goes through his motions of the day, he runs into certain people. One of them is a coworker who he just has a quick conversation with and his coworkers are excited about going off to vacation with his wife. So you can see some friendship there. Main thing that he runs into are young children. Young children really gravitate towards Eddie. And he uses pipe cleaners to make little animals. He runs into one little girl specifically. Oh, who you know, is it Amy or Annie? He doesn't quite remember the name. And he makes a pipe cleaner bunny for her. And then he's just going about going through his day. He gets in a spat a little bit with a group of teenagers, kind of a grumpy man moment, which is funny because he talks about how he doesn't like teenagers. And then as you get further into his day of routines, each as we're moving along, we have a time clock taking down to how many minutes are left in his life. So we're aware that he's going to die in this chapter that we're taking down. And we see that one of the rides 
Freddie's free fall uh, has an issue. And one of the, it's, it's up in the top and it looks like one of the cars that has four people in it is going to fall. Eddie realizes this and because of his knowledge of the maintenance, he goes through how to get them off safely. He has one of his coworkers get ahead and work to get those people out of the cart. And as he's realizing with the evacuation, he realizes that there's a problem with the cable. And then if they release the brake, the cart will fall. And he's trying to get everyone to move back because he realizes this almost in a moment that's, well, it isn't in a moment that's too late because they don't hear him not to release the brake. And enough people get back, but then the cart falls and he realizes right before it falls that there's that same little girl with a pipe cleaner who's going to be crushed by the ride as it falls to the ground. So he runs forward and he has also a, a limp, which is important, with a cane. And he runs forward to try to save her. And the last thing he feels are two hands in his own. And then the he's crushed by the ride. Right. And that's where the chapter ends which is really cool. There's also, I want to call out some of the lines on the first page of the Kindle version where it says, this is a story about a man named Eddie and it begins at the end with Eddie dying in the sun. It might seem strange to start a story with an ending, but all endings are also beginnings. We just don't know it at the time. So totally giving away what's happening, right? What's going to happen. And then it also says on my Kindle version on the first page, it also had a big new ride called Freddy's Free Fall, and this would be where Eddie would be killed in an accident that would make newspapers around the state. So, like, not holding anything back, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I've seen that's really special with this book. And I've seen people, I've tried to do it and imitate it myself. And it's interesting to see when it works and when it doesn't. Uh-huh. When can you give away huge details? that are actually going to pull us into the story versus when you give away too much that just kind of distracts us. Have you ever run into that, Savannah, where people give away too much information and actually decreases our enthusiasm to read forward instead of making success? You know, usually I see the opposite where we don't have enough information and then it makes you not get invested as much as you want to be. But Mm -hmm. I think about it kind of, what are we reading for? So we know he does die. I think we want to know like maybe... I don't know, what did his life mean? What did his life look like up until this point? How is this going to affect the people around him? We're not reading to find out how does he die. Other books, I'm thinking like, you know, action fantasy stories or mysteries or things like that. We're reading to find out what. So like what's going to happen and how is it going to happen? You know, maybe sometimes that deeper why. But yeah, this one's definitely like shifting. We know the what, right? So now it's just the background information. Yes. And what I think is interesting about this is that This is also a tactic that can be used in a way to pull you into the story that maybe it's something that you work towards the climax before you know it caused because it's causing that. Why? Why does this Mm -hmm. happen? Or what you're going to basically the story for me come about how it actually gets to that point. As an example, if you have listened to me at all with anything, you know, I love Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And in the opening song of Hamilton, it's Alexander Hamilton. And you see Burr, Aaron Burr. And he has the line of, and I'm the man who shot him. And I think that that is what that story is about. Like, how do we get from friends to frenemies? Right. That's what you're driving towards the climax in the story. And this, we have that big question of, you know, how is he going to die in this chapter? But one of the interesting facts that happens by the end of it is, did he save the little girl? Right. And I think that's something that we hold on to, to figure out. You don't know that. And it's a question that Eddie continues to question throughout the story. And it's really important. We'll, we'll probably get into this when we ask the question about what is the story really about? Yeah. So I won't go too much into it. But I think that that is a really important factor of how we create the sense of mysticism within a huge event that, again, is the beginning of the end, but aren't all endings just beginnings. Yeah. So I think if I'm hearing what you're saying, it's about figuring out what question you want readers to read forward to, and then giving us the information to answer some of the other questions to start building that trust. Which yeah, I, agree. I, I think that not knowing the answer to everything, like whether or not we're trying to figure out why something happened or how it happened is why we read forward. Because if you give too much away without having those still unknowns, then there's no reason to move forward. But if you don't, if you pull us in with character, what this chapter does, and then you still have one of those, why does this happen or how does this happen? That is a reason to hold on and to read forward. Right. 
So it's not about does he die? It's about what happens now that he is dead, yes. both with the girl and with those around him. But the other thing I was just thinking, too, is we have to think about things from the reader's perspective, obviously, because imagine this sort of if this author didn't give us the fact that he died. And mm-hmm. so let's say the opening was still the same. It's like Eddie's at this pier. He's doing his daily job. Then we don't know for sure that he dies because the author doesn't tell us. And then we go into like backstory and him floating in the mysticisms of, you know, could be heaven, could be not, whatever. I mean, we know it's heaven because by people you meet in heaven, but it would just be weird and it wouldn't, we wouldn't be grounded into anything because we don't know the answer to did he die or like what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that makes me think, and this is uh, an important question that I'd like to ask you, Savannah. I don't read this as a prologue in disguise. Yeah. I read this as the first event. And what you said just kind of made me think of this. Because if you were to start hypothetically and you were to cut this out, uh, you could say, you know, sometimes stories start with backstory. And I think that starting with backstory can be meaningful if the intent of the backstory is to ground us in character and establishing, rooting us really into what their fear is and why that fear bumps against their desire and right. how that can really start to establish character and make it character driven in the beginning. Right. And I do think this first chapter does this. I don't think it's backstory because we are seeing this as the beginning. And I'm trying to pinpoint exactly why I don't see it as a prologue in disguise. So I'm wondering if you have. Well, some- I totally agree because I don't see it as backstory either. But I know that in the upcoming chapters, we do get into the backstory, right? Yeah. 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 So I think you're right. This is like we're in the moment with him when his story starts on the day that things change and his change is that he dies. And then we go, you know, through parts of his life and his current life in heaven. But I was saying earlier, imagine like if we didn't have the fact that he died. So because I see a lot of writers trying to leave too many questions open. And then it's almost like there's so many questions that we have no idea what's going on. So like pretend that he didn't tell us that Eddie died. And then it's like, why are we getting all this backstory? Because we don't know if he died. Right. But this gives us the opposite of that. We know for sure. Now we're reading to find out that why. So the backstory that's coming in the next few chapters makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Okay. So to analyze this first chapter, as we have done in our other first chapter deep dives, we'll do the seven key first chapter questions to look at that big picture, main main plot line, macro story, however you want to call it. And then we will take a deep dive into the scene structure and we use the five commandments of storytelling from StoryGrid in order to do that. Mm -hmm. So... What do you want to start with, Savannah? Do you want to read the questions? What meter? Yeah. Let's do the big picture questions first. And our very first one. So these come from Paul Meunier's book, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings, which we are both obsessed with. And the very first question is, what kind of story is this? So what's the genre? And remember, if you've been listening to these for a while, we look at genre in two ways. So what's the commercial genre? Where does it sit on the shelf? What's it marketed as? And then what's the content genre? So Abigail, you want to tackle commercial first? Sure. So I would call this commercial fiction for that commercial genre. What I think is interesting is that this story is so character driven, but I do think it reads quickly and it uh, is while character driven, it's a lot about the plot that's happening to him in heaven. So it's interesting because I think that this would be marketed as commercial fiction. But if I were, I think that it's also uh, a little bit more emotionally engaging not that commercial fiction is not emotionally engaging, but I think that I I see a strong pull of character driven in the material. So it's almost like for me personally, I see equal weights of character and plot, but it reads quickly and it is very plot focused as you go through heaven. So I'd probably say this is more of like a general fiction, commercial fiction area. And then I would say for content genre, this is a story that I would actually classify as probably a worldview story. So I see it dominantly as an internal story. And that's where that emotional drive, that character drive is really important. And you have life and death stakes, but those stakes are actually gone by by chapter one, right? Yeah, because we're not reading to find out if he dies. We know he's dead. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. So you have a lot of why I wanted to pick this one in particular is because one of my missions in life, I think, is to figure out how to tell these internally driven stories and balance all of these important external stakes equally. Mm-hmm. And this one 
exemplifies that in the sense that you can tell that we have really this internal arc that is the point of the book. At the same time, we're going through a variety of external stakes as he goes through the, what I like to say, like the, um, the container of meeting the five people. So right. we have this container event of, okay, we're going through and we're going to meet these five people. That's the hook, right? That drives the story forward. But within that, we're going to explore different types of content genres. We're going to have a war genre. We're going to have a love genre. You know, we're going to have different types of genres that are going to challenge his perspective of did his life have meaning? And that's right. where it's, it's about worldview, his his shift in worldview in the sense of did my life have meaning and can I now proceed into heaven with satisfaction, peace, sophistication, wisdom, whatever you want to call that. I bet that great sense of I had meaning or I did not. And that's challenged by his conversations and reliving a bit of the backstories that we learn that he's gone through in his life of, you know, what the the big moments in his life, I would say, that right. define who, how he lived and why his existence mattered. Right. And I totally agree. I think it's a worldview story. I like what you said that there's also external stuff that's driving the story forward because we can't just have, you know, a character thinking to themselves about their life and there would be nothing to pull us through, right? So we want to find as readers the same questions that Eddie has. We we want the answers to those questions. What mm-hmm. did my life mean? Did I save the little girl? What does it all matter? You know, and his worldview change helps us have a worldview change, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I know we're going to have stakes as a different question, but that just made me the question of, did I save the little girl? I just want to save this now before I forget. <laughs> I do think that that w- is a stake to him tied yeah. to the sense of meaning. Right. Because he does not feel like his life was a meaningful life. Uh, and we get the sense of this early in the first like page or two, where it talks about how he he envisioned that he was going to do more with his life, but he ended up just working at the fear like his father. And he Right. He down himself for that lack of growth, I guess, in location and in role of what he did professionally and personally after the war. You know, he got pulled away from the war and then he comes back. And I do think he desperately holds on to the stake of, did I save her? Because it's almost like if he can com- get confirmation that he saved her, there was some purpose to his life. Right. And that's something that both drives us forward to the end and also is confirmed in the end. And it is something that challenges us to see his definition of meaning and where there might need to be some gray zone that he needs mm-hmm. to undergo. You know, he he lives this black and white view right now and what is mean a meaningful life. And I know that's a big part of what engaged me going forward and also made me like him a lot because you see this very heroic act. However, no person is defined by one act, even if it does make the papers across the town, you know? Right. The other thing too is he was married and he lost his wife, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we get some of that in the first chapter and it's kind of like, okay, now that I'm, you know, not the guy that I was in the war, now that I'm not a husband, what's it all mean? You know? And then, so like Abigail said, he's just kind of existing um, then he dies and then he finds that meaning. So yeah, totally agree about worldview. Uh, the second question, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but the second question is what is the plot? And we usually take this to speak more to that content genre. So anything to add there? Yeah, so I'll elaborate a little bit. So as you go forward in the story, he's going to meet five people. You learn very quickly as you enter heaven that before you, you know, we'll say go through the gates of heaven, you meet five people that had a significant impact in your life. And through that, you kind of get insight as to what your purpose is or what gave your life purpose and challenges maybe some of the flawed worldviews that are holding you back from going forward with peace and closure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, There's not necessarily a hierarchy ranking of who you meet, but I've always, I see it as there a little bit is a hierarchy of importance, a hierarchy of importance of how these people impacted his life. And it also, in a way, overlaps, but goes in order of his life itself, of who he meets as he goes forward. But all of that is going to challenge his very 
limited worldview that he doesn't believe that his life has had this sense of meaning, despite having actually had a pretty huge impact on everyday people. And that, I think, is what makes this first chapter so endearing, is that we see him going through the motions. One of the things that you might hear in writing advice is don't go through the motions for an opening chapter. You can't just wake up and go through your day. That's quite boring because nothing happens. But something significant really does happen in this first chapter. We see his death. Like, that's the start of the whole story. At the same time, how we go through the motions of his day reinforces the kind of person that Eddie is. So it's becoming very character-driven. And at the same time, it challenges his worldview with what we're seeing that he might not see. So Mm -hmm. how he interacts with children. There are little segues into his interiority that reflect on his life, like when he got in a fight and his brother being embarrassed about that. So you're kind of getting some insight of what matters to him with his relationship with his wife. I think it's uh, Marguerite, right? Yeah. So I think that you see that there absolutely was a place of value for him. How he's kind to Dom is another interaction of these these small interactions that he has by just being Eddie and what he doesn't see as value and how that can clash with actually the value that he gives to others. The plot is about bringing that to life in an externalized way. Because I think that's something that especially when writers set out to write these internally driven novels, they had the idea, I want this to be the message, but they don't know how to actually create external conflict that manifests that change or right. that, you know, that shift in worldview. Right. And I like what you said, too, about going through mundane things, because the setup in this book is that like, this is how he views his life, right? He lives in this mundane world of I just repair things and I go through the motions and at best I get a little break to look out over the ocean and things like that or I make a kid smile. It's a great way to put us kind of in his shoes, even though, you know, we do have a little distance with the omniscient narrator, which we can talk about in a second. But it's not like, you know, we see him waking up for the day and he's making his coffee and then he's going on the subway and, you know, it's mundane in the arena that the rest of his life kind of takes place in. So I think it's a good example of showing the mundane in an interesting way. Yeah. So we'll talk about that in the next question, which I think your answer is going to probably go to is (laughs) who's telling the story. So that's question number three. Yeah. So real quick before that, I always like to say Alfred Hitchcock's line of uh, drama is life with the dull moments taken out. Yeah. That we don't need him (laughs) making his coffee because that is not significant into what is going to set up expectations for what the real story is in the next scene. Interacting with someone like Dom or the little girl with the pipe cleaner bunny that he gives, very important for Senate. Yeah. So the POV is very important. The point of view here, being an omniscient narrator. And I think the best comparison example I can give of this is that we, we cannot be limited to Eddie's point of view. Right. Even though it is about his shift, but Eddie would be too biased right, into not believing in his value. So while we're going to have other characters point blank saying to him why he had value in us, you know, it's, it's more than telling necessarily because we're going to see scenes that prove those points. Right. You go into these moments of these people that he meets. If you were to limit us to Eddie's, I think it would do a disservice to the story because we would be too limited to the sense of seeing something like this first chapter does, why Eddie is this actually like, you know, not actually, but why he is this meaningful person and why he actually offers such great purpose to the lives of others, to life itself, despite what he sees as small, being just this maintenance man working at this pier that he's, he feels a little bit like he's been frozen or trapped in his entire life. Right. And, I think that whereas and right, you get that pretty early in the first two pages. He had broken yep. me up. See if I can just find it. There's a section where it talks about how he just eventually he just settled and he just accepted that he was going to be this maintenance man who followed in the footsteps of his father. And you get the sense through that omniscient point of view that. Eddie looks down on that a little bit. Yeah. Also, it's more like built into his resentment 
or his disappointment and what he had dreamed his life to be and what it didn't become because of circumstances that were really out of his control, like going to war. Right. And, uh, you know, eventually then just kind of accepting and settling that. So I think that that's very, that's a pretty universal feeling. I, you know, I definitely, I think that people can understand it, even if they haven't experienced it themselves, the feeling of thinking that your life is going to be more, but then also the reality of what life is as responsibilities come into play as an adult. So as a child, you can dream about your life being this like big grandiose adventure. And while I'm not saying don't like, you know, I'm not saying that you can't have adventure. I think what that life of adventure is drastically changes when you become an adult and you see that you have to do things like work a job to feed yourself. So I think that uh, that's something that really sticks us into an, uh, an understanding of why Eddie feels like he's been a bit frozen in life and he's disappointed at that at the age of 83, his birthday. But if you were to limit yourself only to Eddie, we would miss key interactions like how the children, how he, he would be, we'd be focusing too much on how Eddie is reacting and how he's feeling to the children who want to go on the roller coaster ride with him, for example, versus how having a little bit of distance allows us to see that in an unbiased interaction right. and forces how good of a person Eddie is, even if he yeah. can't see it himself. I think that's interesting, too, because there are parts in the first chapter where the omniscient narrator is telling us, like, how good of a repairman Eddie actually is. So right. although he looks down on it, there's a part where he's kind of like, I can hear the yes. wrongness happen yes. or he can hear trouble and he hears certain things in the equipment. So, like, he's really good at his job, you know, and and it even says, like, his job was maintaining the rides, which really meant keeping the people safe. So like he he has an important job. He's really good at it. Uh, like you said, the children are reacting to him in a different way. And I agree that like being in Eddie's head, it would just he would be an unreliable narrator if we were yeah. in his head. Yeah. But the thing I want to ask you, because I know you have a lot to say about this, is we're not getting a ton of Eddie's interiority because we're in the omniscient point of view. However, there's a lot of voice like the opening is not neutral. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about the voice in this opening a little? Yeah, I think, well, I think that there is, when you do, it's not quite interiority, but when you do get pulled into Eddie as a character, we feel his grumbliness, right. I'm call it. And it reminds me, this is a, came out before, A Man Called Uva by Frederick Backman, but we have a very similar character here in that we have an innately good protagonist, but they're old and grumbly. Because life has, you know, caused a lot of emotionally challenging obstacles has come into their life throughout their life. Yeah, and they've lost their meaning. Bit. Yeah, they've worn them down a bit. And like case in point, like as an example of voice, I found that paragraph. So it's on page five if you have the printed version, but I'm just going to read it really quick to show you this. So greasing a track, Eddie would say, required no more brains than washing a dish. So like right there, there's attitudes there. Required no yeah. more brains <laughs> than washing a dish. The only difference as you got dirt was that as you got dirtier, you did it not cleaner. And that was the sort of work that Eddie did. Spread grease, adjusted brakes, tightened bolts, checked electrical panels. Many times he had longed to leave this place, find different work, build another kind of life. But the war came. His plans never worked out. In time, he found himself graying and wearing looser pants in a state of weary acceptance that this was who he was and who he would always be. A man must stand in his shoes in a world of mechanical laughter and grilled frankfurters. Like his father before him, like the patch in his shirt, Eddie was maintenance, the head of maintenance, or as the kids sometimes called him, the ride man at Ruby Pierre. Right. So that's omniscient and the sense that we are, we are detached. It's a narration of Eddie, but through that, we see insight to the grumbliness of Eddie and how he is this kind of like old grumpy man, but also a teddy bear, <laughs> you know, when it comes to the right people and also his opinions and his thoughts as to what has brought him to where he is. So I say this with voice. It's it, voice is so challenging sometimes, Savannah, because it's one of those things that it's both character and author, right. I feel. And either and way, I, it can't be neutral. It can't be neutral. It ha- and like there is. I know it's a tricky word to kind of define because you have to define it in its own way. Yeah. Book, but it has attitude. Yeah. And 
That attitude defines the type of character that Eddie is. At the same time, it's not necessarily Mitch Album who's telling the story, but if you read any Mitch Album's books, he has this voice. Yeah. And it's easy to read. It's very specific with the diction, I would say, and how it is selecting ways to describe certain characters and descriptions of the setting and the action as well as the emotion. So combining things with like, and that was the sort of work that Eddie did, spread grease, adjusted brakes, tightened bolts, checked electrical panels. That is what he is going through as the motions of his everyday life. That's what he does. So, you know, that's kind of telling us something. But then we get pulled into this character and why this voice matters and how you can create attitude because many times he had longed to leave this place, find different work, build another kind of life, but the war came. Yeah. And it does a good job at at basically creating these simple sentences, but these simple sentences that have a lot of emotion in them, at the same time varying the amount of words that are in each sentence, which I always like to say you want to have sentence variation like, because that allows us to feel voice more in a harmonic way than necessarily falling into the trap of sentences that feel like the similar length and skip in the voice a lot. So especially in audition. When you don't have such an opinionated first person driving the story, we need to see that rhythm in an innovative way, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so this kind of leads into the next question, which is number four, which character should we care about the most? I think it's probably pretty obvious. Yeah. (laughs) We also care about the girl. Yeah, that's true. That he's going to say, obviously, Eddie is the protagonist here. And I think what most connects us to him is how other people might perceive his purpose versus how he perceives his purpose and meaning. And that creates sympathy for him because we see how he is, again, an innately good character. We kind of chuckle a little bit when he has that interaction with the teenagers and he whacks his cane against the roller coaster and that scares them off. And that's funny because earlier we we see how children loved him just based on his appearance. It made him look like he was always smiling like a dolphin. But teenagers didn't really like him and he didn't like teenagers. And then we see that interaction, which adds to the humor of that moment. And I think that with kids, that's one of, you know, a very save the cat moment, right? In the mm-hmm. sense that he's also elderly. So like a couple of tactics, there's Chloe. A couple of techniques to use with save the cat is anyone who saves or helps elderly people or children is immediately a likable character. And he is elderly and likes children. So the children gravitate towards him. And while he kind of grumble grumbles with, you know, with with even this little girl who he interacts with a pipe cleaner, he turns into a bunny. You can see he's like, where are your parents? And she's like, mom's with her boyfriend. And he goes, oh, you know, in his, no, he didn't say it out loud, but the narration shows us again, Eddie's voice through that. Yeah. So we as an adult reader, understand how much packs into that realization of, oh, uh-huh. but that little girl is just this innocent little girl who's now alone in the theme park. And then is the, of course, intentionally placed as the one who's going to be crushed by the ride. And I think Eddie would save whoever was going to be crushed under that ride, but it adds to the type of person he is when he is so desperate to get there and save and save that little girl. And that really bleeds and molds into the story itself because a huge arc in the story is going to be um, a mistake he made by accidentally killing a little girl in in the war. Yeah. And I think uh, if I were listening to us and you keep saying he's grumbly, I might be like, okay, how do I write a character that's not perfect and super likable in a a way that people are going to relate to them? And I think a lot of what you said is the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. You know, like we need to see like how they're interpreting the world, which we do get, even though we're an omniscient narrator, uh, the save the cat moment, like you talked about, and just the other people's reactions to him. So we see him, you know, not only deal with children and things like that, but he gives Dom some money to take his wife someplace special. You know, I think it's their birthday or anniversary or something, right, Abigail? Yep. Yep. So like we see that he's this very nice man actually no matter what he thinks of himself so yes yes he's very selfless and like even and he also doesn't he's he knows i think what you said earlier savannah he's extremely competent at what he does and that's another 
can have with creating an interesting character is making them really confident at something. Yeah. He's confident at maintenance, but also you can tell that he is worldly. Yeah. Just having only lived at the pier. I mean, he's he's been, I think it was Vietnam. So I, I he's been to war. And one of the, the things that you can see where he is humble is that when Dom makes a comment after he gives him that gift about how they're with fishing, one day we're going to catch a halibut. And Eddie's line is some, like, well, the narrator's line. The next line is something like, Eddie says, basically, yes. You, and then it's, again, pulling us into Eddie's character voice a bit. Although he would, he knew that you could never pull that big of a fish out of that hole that they were fishing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a choice, right? That's a choice from that character to either shut someone down, which is something that is hopeful to them, or just to kind of allow them to have that. Yeah. And that, again, reinforces the innate goodness that I believe is exists within Eddie and yeah. his humility, despite feeling him in his own heart that he doesn't have value. Yeah. And I think it's important no matter what kind of character you're writing, like Eddie's a good example of someone who's not just one note. So he's not all grumbly or he's not like all super nice, right? He's a mixed bag like all of us are. So I think it's really important to show that no matter what kind of character you're writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but the next question is setting. So where does the story take place? Yeah, so this is at Ruby Fear, right? And then, then we're actually going to enter heaven. So we know that he's not going to be on earth very long. You know that by the title. So that's how you kind of go in there. But when this chapter opens up, we are in his place of work at Ruby Fear. Yep. And then the sixth question is, how should readers feel about what's happening in this opening chapter? Yeah, I think that for me, when I read this first chapter, how I feel is, well, I mean, this is kind of a silly word, but I just feel emotional. <laughs> I feel emotional. Yeah. About it. I have big feelings. I think that that longing, that that terror of wanting to add value to life. And also, I think even if you haven't been at some place in your life to feel this way, but feeling like you can reach a place of just exhaustion and acceptance of what your role is and still not feeling like that is adding value in the way that you hoped to give to life itself or the world or people. I think that's where Eddie is. And that's a sad truth that he's struggling with. So I'm sad for him because I see from this little bit detached perspective, how he already is instilling value in the world and in people's lives just by being him, but he doesn't see that. And that makes me sad. Right. So I think that's an emotion that I go to, you know, sympathy is and empathy is definitely an emotion that I go to. I don't want him to suffer with that lack of, you know, sense of meaning. Right. And I think that that's what you're hoping for by the end of this book is that he can have joy and peace with who he was in his life. And I like to say like, it's a very, it's a wonderful life situation where you have a George Bailey and they are a good person and they've done a lot, but they feel small. And I think that not everyone who feels small gets the opportunity to see just how important they are. And you don't even, that importance doesn't even have to be to a massive amount of people. It could be to one person, but it could be a life experience. And we don't get to see that. We don't get to see our ripple effects all the time. Most of us won't get to see our ripple effects in as large of a way as they can be. So I think it, it is a book that ends us with hope and a great sense of meaning, but we feel sadness and I mean like stasis really, right? Yeah. Like, and not even, it's almost, it's like your exhaustion. I, I think it's a word that I'm going <laughs> yeah. to put myself into Eddie. It's just kind of like acceptance, right? Acceptance in a way that's like, this is just what it is. Yeah. And I think like based on if we were crafting a story like this and we know the ending's kind of coming with that hope, we need to show the opposite, right? To show that arc could change. So it sets us up to have that emotional payoff at the end. But I also feel sad. Like when I read the question, I was like, yep, the first word that comes to mind is sad. I feel a little worried, I guess. Like I I read about it and I'm like, gosh, I hope that doesn't happen to me. You know, we've all had moments like that, but I don't want to be 83 and feeling like Eddie. So I feel that I feel curious about like what actually did happen because we we know that he dies, but we don't know about the girl. We just know that they clasp hands. We don't really know anything else. Did anyone survive? You know, things like that. So and um, I do think you feel fear 
during that as well. So you feel fear when the red, yeah. Yeah, it goes haywire. Yeah. And so then stakes is the next question. And we want to ask, why should readers care what happens next? Why should we read into the next chapter? This is a really interesting question for this first chapter, because the main stakes, it feels in this first chapter are life and death, but they're not the only stakes. Like the internal stakes and the external stakes for what is really at risk here and what happens in this actual chapter are equally weighted, I would say. Yeah. You have life and death stakes in this first chapter. We are going. We also know that he's going to die. It is the is catalyst for the story. So you're dealing with life or death on the physical landscape, and then you have these psychological stakes. This lack of sense of meaning, and I think you don't really see it until necessarily he starts really getting into the other characters. But you can see how, in the moment that he's saving that little girl, or you know, attempting to save that little girl. He probably, in in his heart of hearts, if he was honest with himself, you wouldn't be risking your life unless you're hoping that that's going to be successful. And like you, he wants to save her. He doesn't know if he saves her or not. Whether or not he saved her or not doesn't mean that he would change his attempt, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think he's going in there with like, I'm going to be the hero type of attitude. He does right. it is instinct. But at at the same time, I do think as we get into heaven, he desperately asked at the very end of every conversation with each person, did I save the little girl? And I think because he's genuinely concerned for that little girl's life. At the same time, I think that it feels to me almost like if he can say that he saved the little girl, it would feel like there was a greater sense of meaning or like some purpose to what he was supposed to do with his life. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because I feel like children are the ones that actually made him feel important or seen so you know to have it be a little girl versus the little girl's mom or someone else i don't know it just stands out to me and i think that that is i'm gonna give all right so this is a big spoiler if you haven't read this this is very old (laughs) yeah yeah put your 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 mouse on you learn that the point of eddie's life is because of children and you go through the story and you learn that he is unable to have children of his own but his life at this pier is able to protect and love children. Yeah. And like you you get that at the end in this like extremely emotional moment where he has an opportunity. What happens is that in during the war, he accidentally burns a, a little girl alive in a house. He didn't realize that she was in there. And at the, the last person in heaven that he meets is that little girl and she's covered in the burn marks. And he's able to take a stone and rub the burn marks off. Mm. And she's the one who who tells them your purpose. Wow. For children. And it's like, I'm like almost crying now. <laughs> so it's very emotional for me. You can tell, like, obviously, I, I don't know. That's it just, it's like to go, to go through a life and to imagine going through your life, feeling like you had no purpose and to finally, like, to see the bigger picture of it. Right. It just, that's cathartic. You know, especially out of a situation that you remember is such a negative, horrible thing, you know? Yeah. And the other cool part about this, again, this is why I wanted to kind of bring this up quickly, making sure that when you have these internally driven stories, why they can't just be about the sermon or lecturing the internal storyline, why they're going to be the most effective is when you're able to take all of these external plot lines and use them as a way of weaving them together so that they're enforced in a climactic moment. That is cathartic because it is showing a physical relief, like a physical action that reaffirms what the internal lesson is. And you can't do the external action unless you've achieved the internal shift. And Eddie's fear is that his life had no meaning, right? Yeah. And I think that when he's able to see his chance that really like forgiving himself and finding value, he's able to scrub those burn marks off, that he's able to do that because of the lessons that he's learned throughout the chapter. I think he would have been too afraid to do it if she was the first person that he met. Yeah, It has to be the fifth person. And then he asks her, did I save the little girl? And he asks about the hands. And the little girl tells her, those hands are mine. Aww. So it it was like, it's, I just think it's, that's something that's really important when you are, when your goal is to write an internally driven story, you have to always very intentionally use these external plot lines 
as a way of eventually threading them together in a climactic moment that shows how everything comes together with purpose. And that purpose is how the internal view shifts because of what they're able to do based on the lessons that they've learned. Right. And to point or to highlight something that you said is this is how you write escalating conflict in an internal story. Because like Abigail said, the fifth person was that girl, right? So it's she's not going to start out as the first one. Each person he meets is going to get harder and harder to accept what they're saying, deal with what they're saying and things like that. And that's a perfect example of escalating the conflict and the stakes in an internal story. Yeah. And a nice yeah. resolution is he, go, he goes on then to be the first person for that little girl and she dies. Yeah. So, which is cool. So, okay. So that's a big picture look at uh, what this opening chapter tells us. I know we went a little into kind of the next few things, but that's a lot for one chapter, right? So this is what we all want our first chapters to do is give us a glimpse of the big picture and mm-hmm. answer those questions. And now we're going to dig into the scene structure. So we're going to identify how many scenes are in this chapter, and we're going to analyze the scene or the scenes using uh, the five commandments from the story grid. So if you're a fan, you'll recognize this structure. But given the chapter summary you went through earlier, Abigail, what would we say is Eddie's goal? Because we always like to start there. Yeah. Yeah. And his goal is simple in my mind. It's just to you know go through the day checking out the rides. Right. Like his, Keep his, people his, safe. Specifically, he wants to ride the roller coasters today because he wants to keep people safe and he chooses a one ride a week to, you know, focus on what issues could be. Right. Yep. And I think this is really important to establish because if we keep this in mind of like, I want to make sure the rides work so that people are safe, we can identify what's the conflict that gets in the way of that goal. So two things I want to talk about big picture. First is how many scenes do we see in this chapter? I see in one scene, one chapter. Yep. And so we agree on this. We think there's one scene in there. And then also, if anybody has the book, you'll notice there's a lot of like breaks between moments. So I think this could be a confusing thing for certain people to analyze because they might say, okay, here's a little blurb where he talks to the young girl that that goes for a page and a half. And then there's a break. And then there's another little moment where he's talking to Dom and then there's a break, right? Um, so Abigail and I ignore these breaks and we're just kind of looking for the arc of change that we can focus on and what's the goal and then what's the conflict that gets in the way of that goal that creates change. Anything to add there quickly or do you want to go into the structure? No, I think it's important to ignore the breaks. In my, yeah. And I think that you'll notice that when there are breaks, this was often they are weaving in some backstory, some quick backstory details, okay. but those backstory details that are saved in this first chapter are not just info dumping. They're purposeful on that the what happens before them makes sense as to why Eddie is thinking about something from his life. Right. And also they are actually setting us up for conflict and people that we're going to meet in heaven. Right. So they are very intentional. They're just they're not just random. But we'll right. see them pay off. Yep. Yeah. And Abigail and I were talking off podcast before about something that Donald Moss calls postcard scenes. So I looked up this definition, which we can talk about later if we want. But if not, you guys can go look up Donald Moss postcard scenes. And it says, while scenes consist of action and move the plot forward, postcards are moments when the author pauses to take a deep dive that causes change not in the situation or any of the characters, but in the reader's view or perception. There are moments that lead to deeper understanding. So some of these moments Abigail is talking about that are backstory, obviously a lot of them do this, right? In some books, you see full scenes of backstory. And in this book, we're not getting full scenes, rather these postcard moments. Yes. A good example of a full scene as backstory woven within a first chapter is Jojo Moy's The Giver of Stars. I use that one as an example where you have like a good like two pages, I think, of backstory within the context of one scene. So this is a much shorter version of that. But if you want to see a longer version of that, then I would say read the first chapter of that one. The Giver of Star. Okay. So thinking of the goal, which is to, you know, maintain the rides to keep people safe. What are we saying is the inciting incident or that first little moment of conflict that gets in the way? Yeah. So it doesn't happen actually for quite a bit into the first chapter. It's when the ride has an issue. The Freddy Fall. Notice on the first page that we are informed that the Freddy Free Fall is new. Right. 
And this also kind of bumps up against Eddie's perspective of how things aren't as good as they used to be. Kind of that like, you know, elderly mentality that can sometimes maybe feel tropey, but it's not tropey in the sense it's or not cliche in the sense because we see how it applies to how he goes through his day. But I think that's we we get it. We get the sense that this Freddie Freefall, it's a new ride. And that is going to be the one that then comes back full force with having an issue with the unsighting incident. Yeah. And so specifically in the text, it's a woman yelling, oh, my God, look. And so he's Mm -hmm. got his eyes closed and he's, you know, listening to all the sounds that he says he could sleep through them all like a lullaby. But this voice was not in the lullaby. So it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. something's happening. Right. We kind of know. Then there's some conflict that builds. So he, you know, comes to out of his nap. And he's like, okay, what's going on? You know, he's looking around for things. And then what we're looking for next is a turning point. So that's the peak moment of conflict where it's like, now this has happened and we're going to force Eddie into a crisis decision between two equally good or bad choices. So what would we say is that turning point? Yeah, so I think there are two places, but they're basically the same thing. But you could, if you want to be specific, like getting really specific, it's either when the ride actually falls, the car seat actually falls, and then he's going to make that choice of go save the little girl who's underneath it or not, or it's his realization that there's an issue with the cable and that what he knows Dom is going to do will actually cause the ride's cart to fall. And that's when he starts um, screaming at people to get back. So they're kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. But if, I guess if you were to pick a specific one, is that what you saw, Savannah? And if so, what one did you lean towards? Yeah, so I either saw it as when the ca- the cart started to fall or when he sees the little girl and he, you know, because yeah. I, I, I kept asking myself, like, if he didn't see the girl, would he have run towards the cart at all? That's a good. Probably yeah. not, right? And then, like you were saying before, when he realizes the, the you know, the brakes aren't going to work or whatever the first option was. I'm kind of wondering, like, what were his other choices, right? Is there another choice or is he just kind of like, don't push the brakes because it's not going to work? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think it's the when he sees the little girl, that is what would motivate him to move forward. Right? Yeah. And so it's, that, it's almost involuntary. Right. It's like it's so instinctive to him. He saves people and he saves specifically children. Right. But yeah. when the people, it's all like, you know, when he shouts at the people to get back, it mentions that people did get back. So if the cart's just going to fall, who cares about the ride? If the part's going to fall and crush the little girl, that's a different story. Right. Well, and it's interesting because it actually happens. I'm just looking at the page now. It's like he sees the little girl and he's like, Amy, Annie, don't know who. His eyes shot from her to the carts. Did he have time? Her to the carts. And then it says, whomp, too late. The carts were dropping. So actually the carts drop after that. Right. Um, But it's all like the same moment, right? It's like do something or do nothing. A really good example of like how that action is reinforcing the internal struggle, right? Which is uh-huh. the So that's it. The, the stakes are raised because I think if he doesn't act, he would never be able to live with himself. Right. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> not literally dying, but, you know, his uh, psyche and his heart will be ripped out of his chest if this little girl dies or he's going to risk death, literal death. Um, So that's like his choice. We don't spend a ton of time with him going, should I do this or should I not? Because there's just not time. But, you know, he's consciously saying like, she doesn't have time to escape. What am I going to do kind of thing? So that's the crisis. And then the climax, we know uh, this is like what action they take. So his action is he goes to the little girl. We know they clasp hands. And the resolution, I think, comes probably in the next chapter. Yeah. So the resolution, I would just say he is he dies. Yeah. You know, I think the resolution is he dies and that the other girl, little girl that you will get to learn pulls him to heaven. So the next chapter is the journey, which like you're saying is that could really be the resolution if you were to combine it with this first chapter, if you wanted to, because it doesn't really have a decision in that. It's more like his wonderings about where he is and what has happened. And did he save the little girl? So it is it's very quick. You could call that resolution. Yeah. So, but I like what you're saying. Like the result of all of this is that he dies, which we were told in the very beginning, right? So now that we have kind of identified the structure, we can look at, okay, what's changed and how do we feel about the arc of change? 
And the most obvious one is that he went from alive to dead, right? But there's obviously a lot going on underneath that too. Right, right. So, I mean, he took action. Obviously, he thinks life in general has some meaning, maybe just not his. Maybe um, children, you know, are worth protecting. We know he thinks that. We know that's part of his arc. So we see that in force in the beginning. But yeah. I, think I mean, like, I, I think that's a change. It's a great example of how when you have life or death on the page, it's very difficult to not see that as a value shift because it is a value shift, right? We we go yeah. from life to death, and usually you can you can pinpoint. I, mean, I guess I'm just generalizing here, but I think that it's easier. Sometimes it can be easier to pinpoint the external shift, but if this is a worldview story, you can absolutely argue why this moment impacts the big picture right it impacts it and with the worldview challenges like the main value at stake meaning that you're dealing with a spectrum that goes from like meaninglessness to meaning or a sense of meaninglessness to sense of meaning in his case and this absolutely would impact that and i think that's actually reinforced with his wondering of did i save the little girl because he they're inseparable to him like his death will have more meaning if he had saved her well, and it's kind of like we can piggyback on the change. He goes from alive to dead. He goes from alive, wondering if his life had meaning. He's still wondering that by the end, but now it's like you're no longer alive, so your chance is out right? kind of thing. So right. it's a very interesting place for the story to start. And I think the obviously the arc of change works because we're at this point, we're like, okay, well, now what? Right. Bond advances, characters developed. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you, when we talked uh, earlier you mentioned something about how since this book is so short, how do we think about this first chapter? Like, is this the majority of an act one? And we yeah. did some quick math, which I'll just quickly say before you before you add your two cents. Okay, we on. did some quick math because I, I like to see percentages. And so what we came up with was the end of this chapter represents about eight and a half percent of the total book. And usually we see that beginnings are somewhere around 20, 25 percent. So it's interesting because if it's not the total beginning, is it the inciting incident? You know, there's so many questions we could ask, but go ahead, Abigail. Yeah, I it's where I think I'd have to read the whole book again in order to say this confidently, but it does feel like the first chapter is a large chunk of the beginning, yeah. right? Large chunk of act one. It's absolutely the catalyst of the story. Right. So that's unquestionable to mind. Your inciting incident has happened by the end of this chapter. Yeah. I don't know quite where I think his point, this is right after read it again, I don't know quite where I think his point in a return decision is, which I used to define when we shift from beginning to mental or X1 to X2, because he's going to go into heaven and he doesn't seem to really have much choice on meeting these people. Right. So I don't know because I haven't read the book, but it would be an interesting case study to look at. Yeah. I mean, I do think that your point of return, you can either be forced into it or you can make that choice. Right. This might be more of a case of you are dead. So this is what's happening now. Right. But do we start with the middle as the first person that he meets or is there a shift somewhere after that? I'm not quite sure. I'm yeah. having visions of me years ago looking at this and asking the same question randomly <laughs> and wondering when I did the math, if it's after the blue man, who's the first man that he meets. First person he meets, if that's like technically where we think he goes into acts in the middle, but yeah, yeah, it's it's a large part of it, you know. Yeah, it's interesting to think about because you know, not that everything has to go according to the percentages we see out there on the internet, but it's just something. If we were to write a story like this, these are good questions to ask, just to think about. So we don't have an answer, but it's uh, a question that we are pondering, and we'll give it to you guys to ponder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's good to ask it regardless. Yeah. So I think this was a fun opening to study. It's definitely different than a lot of current commercial books, which is cool. Any parting thoughts, Abigail? Just that I love this story. If you want a quick read, I do think I just reinforce, I think it's a great example. If you want to write an internally driven story of how, hey, go go read it, take a deep dive and really pay attention to what you think are external stakes in the story as he meets the people. Because we know that Life and death is not really a stake because he is dead already, but there are life and death stakes sometimes that can exist in the page based on how uh, the backstory moments through less of a post-it and more of an experience of how it's written play out. Um, but a, a great example to see how you can take a variety of external stakes or external plot lines and use them as a way to thread a really cathartic moment in the climax 
that ultimately is empowered by the internal shift. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Definitely worth studying if you're writing something like this or something internal. But yeah, I think this was a really fun one to do. So thanks for doing it with me, Abigail. Of course. Always happy to be here with you, Savannah. Thanks so much. So that's it for today's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and for showing your support. If you want to check out any of the links I mentioned in this episode, you can find them in the show notes listed in the description of each episode inside your podcast player or at savannagilbo.com forward slash podcast. If you're an Apple user, I'd really appreciate it if you took a few seconds to leave a rating and a review. Your ratings and reviews tell Apple that this is a podcast that's worth listening to. And in turn, your reviews will help this podcast get in front of more fiction writers just like you. And while you're there, go ahead and hit that follow button because there's going to be another brand new episode next week full of actionable tips, tools, and strategies to help you become a better writer. So I'll see you next week. And until then, happy writing.